Today's program was brought to you by VisitNapaValley.com, the official page for travel to the Napa Valley, America's legendary wine, food, arts, and wellness capital. For more information, visit www.VisitNapaValley.com. Welcome to Chef's Story. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today we're broadcasting live from Gander Restaurant on West 18th Street, where our guest and great chef Jesse Shanker is the um, not only the owner, but he owns a, a, a little empire. He's got Reset Restaurant, and uh, under the umbrella of SNS Restaurant Hospitality. Um, if you don't know Jesse, let me give you a little background. He's been uh, feted by the James Beard Foundation. He's been a Rising Star Chef semifinalist. He's, his nest, restaurant was Best New Restaurant semifinalist 2011. He's been chosen by Forbes 30 Under 30 for Food and Wine. Uh, uh, he's, and Food and Wine's uh, magazine picked him as People's Best New Chef nominee in 2012. One of his biggest and most favorite accomplishments has been winning Iron Chef America in 2011 over Jeffrey Sakarian. And uh, he's gotten stars from the New York Times and New York Magazine, and it's a hot restaurant. He's a hot chef. So welcome, Jesse. Welcome. Thank you very much. So we're going we're gonna to delve a, ba- a bit back in your past. You didn't grow up in New York, and so I want to find out where all these taste buds and, you know, all of this real, you have a pulse on what people want today and the scene today in a very sophisticated way, but in a, in a really down-home way, too. So where did it all start? Um, I actually like the way you put that. That's, that's, I'm going to use that for my press pitch. Um <laughs> No, I, I mean, there. I grew up in South Florida. My, um, you know, very, very lo- close, loving family. Um, you know, my mother was always, you know, trying to cook. Never really cooked much. Um, you know, some some dinners, you know, were just cereal and milk. That was my choice. I'm not putting her on the map or anything. Because present day, she's a great cook. She's gotten really good over the years. Um, but growing up, you know, she wasn't really. It was more about just making sure that we were fed and, and, and nurtured, not so much about the passion or the. And there wasn't really much, you know, love behind it. And, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. It just wasn't her thing. Uh, she was plenty loving. Um, but my great grandmother, my nana May, used to come and watch me probably, you know, zero to five. Um, and I remember hanging out with her in the kitchen or sitting on her lap and watching her peel an apple with a paring knife and feed it to herself and feed it to me and um, I was just very much mesmerized by that Um, and something struck something internal because it was from that moment whether I was three four I don't even know how old I mean I have pictures when I was just like a little you know crazy infant Um, it was from that moment where I always wanted to be in the kitchen Um, and I was the rambunctious crazy kid who was running around and doing all sorts of things and yelling and screaming and peeling wallpaper off walls. I mean, I was just, I was out, out of control. And when I was in the kitchen and I was touching food, my leg would stop tapping and it was kind of this natural volume for me, so to speak. Um, and I loved it because I was always very much in my head just with a lot of thoughts and craziness. And a lot of it was normal 
child things and you know I have kids of my own and I see they're you know could be all over the place but you know it was definitely something more to it and my nana had eventually you know she had passed away when I was probably like five or six and um, my grandmother, my father's mother, her parents used to come over and they'd watch my sister and I when my parents would travel or after school or whenever it was. And she was always making stews and soups and roasts and, and um, you know, a lot around the Jewish holidays is always split pea soup or flunkin or uh, matzo ball soup or and um, I used to help her. I would help her clean the peas. I remember like sticking my hands in the colander and feeling the peas go through my fingers with the water and just... There was something about it. I can't, I, I wish I, like, people are always like, how do you, like, what is it? You know, my dad, I was like, I was born with olive oil in my blood. Like, he just, you know, there was, there was something about the food that I just loved. Um, and I remember how to use kosher salt. Kosher salt was like, you know, most people, you know, um, you know, most, even when I started, you know, you know, working in kitchens through my high school years and teenage years, people around me saw kosher salt for the first time then. And I remember, oh, kosher salt, of course. Like, you know, this is what my family always used. Um, you know, and it's just the difference that the sea salt, the kosher salt did to the food and, you know, the, the, the aggressive seasoning and the, and the aggressive use of onions and garlic and building flavors. Like, I saw that. Like, my nana used to do that. It was like, you know. I very rarely hear that about Jewish food. So that nuance in the layering and, yeah. uh, and, and I mean, did, was that across the board from Passover to, you know, it, New well, Year's? Well, that was, that wasn't how, that was how my, my great grandmother cooked. She would cook with schmaltz and chicken fat and kosher salt. And, and, and she would always start, it was that smell in the kitchen. Like I remember that smell and that's what it was. It was in, in the pot. You know what I mean? And to me as a chef now growing up, looking back at that, that's called layering flavor. She didn't just throw it all in a pot and put water in it and turn it on and let it go. I mean, she was she was getting depth and she was and that's why I feel like eating her food like there was. I talk about the love and the passion. Like it was very like it was nurturing for her. It came from a place of I want to feed and love everybody, and that's how she kind of did it. It wasn't like, all right, I need to make sure that you're fed so you can go to sleep. So you you know, it was it was very you know, and that's how she cooked. And I, I actually speak to my grandfather today about his mother and like he always used to tell me because I remember when he came to her set for the first time and I had sweetbreads on the menu he's like oh sweetbreads he's like I grew up eating these you know like <laughs> like the brain the sweetbread I mean all the end cuts I mean because in the depression it was like his mother went into the butcher and whatever they can get they would get so it was stomach it was it was tripe it was all the all the leftovers for for, for pennies um, and that's what she did she just roasted it in chicken fat and onions and garlic and kosher salt um and, you know, so he was, it was, it was familiar. And, and again, I just, I took that with me. So like. So what were you like when you were 10 years old? And what. I was a maniac. <laughs> you were a maniac. I was a maniac. Well, what were you there. like in school? What, what interested you? If you were going to be a good boy for your mother, what were the things that interested you that you could pursue? And if you were going to be naughty, what were the things you were going to pursue? Um, that's funny. At 10. At 10. To be a good, okay. Um. I mean, sports, you know, my, my, my parents, my father, um, you know, very much, he was very aggressive in terms of forcing me to be involved in every sport. Um, every sport. So team sports as well as individual, like tennis. Yeah, no, not, not, not every sport, but I mean, I, I, so there was different seasons. So there was the soccer season, there was the football season, there was the baseball season, flag football season. So I literally was involved in all those. So year round I was involved in some sort of athletic sport. And I don't know if that was his just controlling way because that's what his father made him do or whatever he thought it was the right thing to do or who knows 
So sports was, you know, I definitely excelled in baseball. I was a good athlete, um, but I just chose, I just didn't like it. So I kind of eventually let that go. But, um, you know, so sports would be, you know, going to playing sports and that, that would make my parents happy, like being involved, discipline, like, you know, um, working as a team, practicing, showing up to places, being responsible, accountable, et cetera. What were you eating in those days? Everything. That's one thing. I mean, so we took a trip to... Where do we go? I feel like we went on the Bahamas or somewhere. We were, like, on a catamaran or a yacht in, like, the Caribbean, like, some random sandals vacation or whatever. And the, the, the captain of this boat pulls up buckets of fresh raw prawn live from the sea. And he's like, who wants to eat these? And I remember eating raw shrimp. And everyone thought I was crazy. But that's, like, the mentality. It was like, I'm going to eat them, you know? And Wait, did you surprise your parents with that? I totally surprised them. They couldn't believe it. <clears throat> you know, I was the kid that when I was super young didn't eat tomato sauce, and then now all of a sudden I'm like trying everything. Um, yeah. What do, you, what do you think happened? How did that? How did that switch go off? Well, I think somewhere between like <clears throat> seven and ten, seven and twelve, I started to really um, get super interested. I mean, that's when I was watching Great Chefs, Great Cities. On you know, I would remember like I would run home as quick as I can. If I was lucky, I'd catch the, the main course and then the dessert, but I never, I would always miss the appetizer because I got off the bus at 2.40, I think it was. I, I forget the exact time. Um, collecting menus. I would read the Sun Sentinel or the Miami Herald every Wednesday to read the reviews of the restaurants. And my parents, I'd be like, go here this weekend, let me know how it was. They would go, I'd be like, bring me back a menu. So I have like a drawer with like all these menus and I remember like um, being so interested in like at the time it was like Norman Van Aken, uh, Oliver Saucy, uh, Mark Militello, Alan Susser. These were like the Mango Gang guys back then. I was like, you know, I was like, I'm going to work for all them, you know. And so were you cooking at home? I was cooking all the time. I mean, I was, I was cooking all the time. So the, you talked about the things that would maybe be not so good and, and I was very rambunctious and I had sort of a, uh, I would say a nervous energy, like I was anxious. And I didn't know at the time I was anxious. I just thought, of, you know, I couldn't identify feeling so well. Now I look back and I'm like, I was just an anxious kid. So when I was in the kitchen, it was very peaceful for me. But to subside, I self-medicated and I started to, whether it was steal my parents' alcohol or just get into trouble at school. Like I was, I was, I was acting out because I didn't really know how to kind of, you know, deal with what I was feeling. Um, and eventually it led to experimenting with drugs, which took me down a whole you know, horrible place. Um, but at the same time, as I was kind of self-medicating and going down this not so great path with, with, with drug abuse and alcohol, I was also following this desire to cook. So it was like they were battling each other, you know? Um, and I remember, you know, I was like 13 and it was like, it was Hanukkah, it was holiday times. And like, I begged my parents, I'm like, I just want a Cuisinart and a Wusthof knife set. And they're like, what's wrong with you? Like, you don't want like a guitar like a dirt bike or like a you know like most kids like they're out like playing with stuff and you want to just be in the kitchen like i was like that's what i want um were they supportive or were they questioning very supportive that's one thing about my parents which has always been great and i try to instill the same thing in my children um but to a point because i want to learn from their mistakes and not over enable and and you know you got to know when to say no um but they were very supportive. I remember, you know, fast forward a little bit. I was in 10th grade and I was like, I don't want to go to high school anymore. I don't like school. I want to go to culinary school, the vocational school. I'll get a GED and I want to work in restaurants at night. My dad was basically like, we support you. Just be the best chef you can be. Like, just go do it. And, you know, they may, obviously they wanted to ensure that I got a high school diploma. So I went and got a GED, but 
you know, I was literally going to vocational school by morning, 7 to 11, um, going for credits after, like from whatever, uh, 12 to 2. Um, and then I was driving to Cafe Max in Pompano Beach and working in kitchens all night. And a 16-year-old, 17-year-old working in kitchens with 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds that are just partying. And it wasn't really the best environment for me at that age. Let's get into that a little. There's a lot of drugs and alcohol in the industry. You get off at midnight. You're really pumped up. It's hard physical labor. Mm-hmm. The party scene, or the but it's more than a party scene. It's almost a family, a brotherhood and sisterhood, yeah. you know, of cooks. Once you're a cook, you're in the family. Yeah. So, you know, here here you've come from a, a, it sounds like a great loving family. You had a passion for something, and you went down the rabbit hole. Was it because you were exposed at such an early age to... You know, explore that with me. I think, you know, people on the other side, this is what's interesting, right. you know. Why Why do you think that happened? We know it helps you bring you back. But how dangerous is it when you're a young cook <laughs> out there and the party scene is wild and the drugs are there right. and the alcohol? Share with us any wisdom. Yeah. Um, well, for me... Um, I think again, I go back and I, I, I can't, I don't want to blame my family, but I'm going to say it's like a percentage of learned behavior and a percentage of just your genes. You know what I mean? So like some people just have that personality, that addictive personality. And I think everyone who's out there who knows who they know who they are, you know, whether it's the obsessive shopper, the obsessive Google or the obsessive eater. I mean, some people just have that. Like some people could do things one time. They don't like it. They press on. Um, I was always the guy that I got into something. I was all or nothing. And food was the first primary example of that. Cause I got into it and I loved it. And then because I was a normal adolescent feeling feelings and going through puberty and the whole thing, when I took a drag off a joint for the first time and I felt that relief again, that same, like, Oh my God, I found this hole, this glory hole and I can, you know, I feel great. And it's, it's subsiding all these uncomfortable feelings I'm having. Um, I ran with that. Um, and then, you know, being so young and working in these kitchens with, with, you know, older people that are kind of taking me under their wing. Um, you know, it was almost like, um, it was like a rite of passage. And I think because I was so inexperienced in life and like, I mean, I don't even think my brain was fully developed. I mean, I don't even know how, how would like, they say, until you're 20 something your brain fully develops or something right. yeah. yeah so I mean I'm I, it was way too I mean, it was just it was wrong um, and I, fe- I did I fell into it um, you know so I think my path was was uh, was was one of you know that's probably pretty common um, you know I think there's a lot of people like me I mean I as cliche as it sounds I mean I was I love soap food so much I mean I was 14 years old and my mother was dropping me off at McDonald's and I worked there part time when I was 14 you know and then I was washing dishes in a mom and pop Italian restaurant and I remember watching the you know the old chefs like old at the time they were probably 25 but cooking and the flames and the burns in their arms and I wanted that and I would help them take the mats out at night I would get greasy all over my apron and my face would be all greasy but I loved it like it was just it turned me on you know and, you know, I think to, to a certain extent, like there's a, there's a, there's probably a, a huge statistic of people that are young that are going through what I'm, what I'm going through that may or may not have chosen the path to get involved in that, that, you know, that parting or that underbelly that really exists there. Um, you know, but. Okay. Well, let's, you, you have said, you, you know, you wouldn't have been as indulgent as your parents were, you know, and other signs. 
you're a young kid, you get high, it feels good. I mean, why not? I mean, and you even wanted to work. A lot of people don't even at that age. It's all about socialization. No, sure. So you were. So now you have your own kids. They're young. But probably your parents were naive about the whole dry, drug thing. And they, all they were trying to do was be supportive and help you. And they did it. They probably talked to doctors. And, and they just didn't hit the right notes until a certain time. What, how, you know, let's say your son wants to go in the profession. And so how are you going to handle it any differently? How, what's the fine line between support and not support? Because I think you, you went through some very rough times. And what was the wake-up call? Um, and and how would you, you know, if you're you're now the parent, how would you handle it? Um, well, I think for me, the you know, being transparent and honest with my son um, or my daughter. I mean, they both seem to have a knack for the kitchen. I mean, they're young, but you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think I think through through actions. You know, I think it's 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 a little different. Um, you know, but I would support him. But I think. There was a there was a level of of boundaries and and structure that was totally missing growing up, and I think that was my parents too much too much trying to be my friend and not my parent. Um, I think my parents were very uncomfortable if I was disappointed in them or didn't, you know, they they wanted to make sure that I was ultra comfortable all the time. Um, so I think learning as a parent to be being okay with my child's discomfort to know that in the long haul it's doing them good. Um, you know, and I think that's the hardest thing for a parent is seeing their child cry and being uncomfortable when you know, and in the moment they're upset, but what you're doing for them is actually a huge value. I mean, a huge lesson. Um, you know, my parents just never wanted me to be uncomfortable. So they were always kind of giving in because, oh, we, Jesse's upset, Jesse's upset. But like, let Jesse be upset because Jesse needs to skin his knee and stand up and, you know. Are you an only child? No, you'd think I was. My, I have an older sister. She was, she was treated the same. Um, and, you know, I think from, from my mom, my mom was definitely more of the disciplinarian. And at the time I, 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 I didn't really respect her as much growing up, which, you know, now I respect her more. I always say I, I idolized the wrong parent growing up, you know, um, which is true. Um, but my father, um, because he grew up in a household with, you know, five brothers and sisters, his dad hustled three jobs. They lived in, you know, in a, in Brooklyn, in a two bedroom apartment. Like he had nothing. He got no attention. He was a middle kid. He was going to do everything and give us everything that he never got. Um, And, you know, because of their love and support and, like, genuinely believing and feeling that, you know, we were able to come through. Um, But ultimately, he did us a disservice by just enabling the shit out of us and never saying no because I had no boundaries. Um, So for me, it's important for me to set boundaries with my child um, you know, like I like what Warren Buffett said, like you give him enough money to do something, not enough to do nothing, mm-hmm. you know. And I think forget financially, just um, just emotionally support. You give him enough emotional support to do something, not too much to do nothing. Okay, we're going to take a break here and we'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by VisitNapaValley.com. Welcome to the Napa Valley, North America's legendary wine and food capital, where the art of living well is defined, and each season holds a story waiting to be discovered. Life feels slower here, lived at a place where tables are set with care. Fine wine and food are created from the bounty of our own vineyards and gardens, and relationships with friends and family gathered around the table are somehow sweeter. When planning a trip to the Napa Valley, we invite you to visit the destination's official visitor website, 
visit NapaValley.com or stop by Napa County's official visitor information center located in downtown Napa, where our friendly and knowledgeable community ambassadors can assist you in creating your own legendary Napa Valley experiences. The Visitor Information Center is located at 600 Main Street, Napa, and is open from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., seven days a week, 360 days a year. Your invitation to experience the Napa Valley beckons. Take a deep breath, lose yourself in our quiet green and golden hills, renew your body and spirit, taste our legendary wines and cuisine, and experience the people who make this valley like no other in the world. For more information, go to visitnapavalley.com. So welcome back. You're listening to Chef Story, and today my guest is Jesse Schenker from uh, Restaurants Reset and The Gander in New York City. And we're in the middle of his um, young, early uh, adulthood and talking about the challenges maybe of being a parent. And I mean, you were, were you, did you work in the kitchens all through? Well, let me put this in context for our, our listeners, that at one stage uh, you got into heroin and crack. And um, by the way, Vanity Fair calls uh, Jesse's book uh, just a riveting, absolute riveting read. Uh, and you should um, all read it. It's why don't you tell us a little bit about the book? I'm looking. All or nothing. One chef's appetite for the extreme. <laughs> yeah, you can um, you can get it on Amazon. I sell it at the restaurants, and uh-huh. any bookstore. But it's really very intimately personal. You you bared all. And um, and you you got to be homeless. So we we're talking about your parents. When did they finally let go and let you fall? And how did you? When did you bounce? You know back. Right. Um, well, I would say I was seven, eighteen years old, um, and I I had been working in kitchens and restaurants. I mean proper kitchens, I mean, real restaurants, um, you know, all through my high school years. I wasn't in high school, but, you know, the, the t- you know, most of the teenage years and, you know, my drug abuse is obviously cr- progressing very, very aggressively. I mean, I was taking Oxycontin and, and eventually shooting drugs and, um, How common was that among your fellow cooks that you were partying with? Um, not so common. Um, <laughs> there was a handful of them. That I was partying with. I mean, I, I worked and partied with with chefs that have that are extremely successful in the nation right now. That are pretty big names that kind of grew up with me and came up with me. And I remember, um, you know, bumping into some of them over you know at events and over the last couple of years. And they're all just kind of shocked I'm alive, um, <clears throat> but proud. Um, and they, you know, most of my coworkers for the most part, you know, obviously there was always the, the outliers that that dabbled in the harder drugs. But for the most part, everyone just smoked a lot of pot and drank a lot, you know? Um, and that was the extent of it. Um, but you, you, no, you, yeah, me, and, and how physically can you go to work every day when well, you're doing that heavy drug? Yeah. Well, that's, that was an issue is I, I, I was, I started off as, as very promising and, you know, and, and really good. I mean, the chefs would, were very, very impressed with me. Um, and as my abuse started to progress and, I would get, I was physically addicted to these drugs. I was withdrawing all the time and coming in late and having to leave early and, and my my work my work suffered and I actually became like the worst guy in the kitchen because of it. Um and that wasn't who I was or wasn't wasn't what I was supposed to be. Um but through, you know, a litany of of arrests and 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 homelessness and and all sorts of stuff I was able to kind of 
hit a, hit a bottom so hard that I wanted to make changes. Um, you know, and I learned through <clears throat> my life experience that the real way to make change is, is through discomfort and pain, which is so it's completely opposite of what I <clears throat> grew up experiencing because my parents were like comfort, 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 Jesse, happy, Jesse, Jesse, Jesse. And then it went to, it just turned, it flipped on its head where it was like, you know, they finally realized through Al-Anon and through therapy that they needed to let me go and kind of figure it out and hit my own bottom. And that was, you know, in April of 2001. And, um, <clears throat> You know, I'd stolen things from them, and you know, I remember my, I walked into my dad's room um, with like a handful of jewelry of my mother's in my pocket, ready to go to a pawn shop to pawn it. He didn't know this, obviously, and he looked at me, and goes, "In my heart, I can never throw you out, but in my head, I will. Don't, don't fuck with me." Yeah. And um, you know, um, I kind of what a line. Yeah, what a line. Mm. Oh my God. And uh, you know, I think back at that moment. I can actually get emotional thinking about it, but I'm, so I'm gonna not. Um, you know, having kids of my own, it's just I, I couldn't. I couldn't imagine what he's. I mean, my kid has a cold. I, I my heart breaks. You know. So you have young chefs in your in your kitchen now. Okay. If you see somebody kind of going that path, do you pull them aside and say anything to them? Um, I do when it's appropriate. Um, I'm. I'm. A, it, it's a. It's a fine line of being a fellow addict, their boss, the business owner. Um, so it's really I have to tread lightly, um, but I'm very much supportive almost too supportive of people that do struggle because um, I've had a handful of people through both restaurants that have came through that definitely have problems, um, you know, front of the house and back of the house. And I've been, you know, it's, again, it's like I want to support people, um, you know, but my way of supporting them as a fellow addict would be to fire them and let them hit their bottom, yeah. right, so they can feel the pain and go through what they need to do so they can get clean. But then as their boss and their, and they're, you know, there's the there's still that, that side of me that says, well, one, I need, I like the employee or need the employee. And then two, it's, you know, there's that feeling of, I don't like, it's, why is it my responsibility to do that? Um, you know, so most of the time I, I kind of, I speak to them. I let them know who I am, what I'm about. I tell them my story. I can, I, I relate with them. And I, I think for when, you know, when having a conversation with someone like that and you expose yourself you, and you show your vulnerabilities, people then tend to side with you and trust you and, and show theirs, um, and through that, I've had actually built a lot of relationships, but ultimately I give people enough room to kind of hang themselves and I hope that it doesn't happen. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes people actually turn around and, but most times people end up just not showing up and, you know, doing what they got to do. And I know it's got to run its course. How much did working in the food industry heal you? You know, it might've led you to this place, but how much did it lead you back? That's a great question. And it saved me. Um, so I went to jail for uh, six months. I went into a work release program from there for another six months. Down in Florida? All in South Florida. And so I had a good year or so under my belt of sobriety, um, which was new for me. Work. I, got, they were, I was able to go out and get a day job. And I went to Big City Tavern on Las Olas Boulevard. And I would show up there every day at 6 and I'd leave at 5 and crazy lunch business. And I remember that first day when I got that big city spice all over my hand that they put on the chicken part and I the smell and the tickets the sound of the printer and the whole thing that feeling that I remember it came back tenfold like that I had felt as a kid and I fucking ran with it you know what I mean and like I really never looked back 
Um, and I buried my head in work and, and I, st- I mean, I went on a cookbook frenzy. I was buying cookbook. I was learning, I was reading, I was eating, I was, you know, and like all the energy that I put into drugs and, and everything that mental, that all or nothing tenacity, like I just really put into work. And I mean, I was 21 when I got clean. I, and I, I literally pushed so hard. I was able to, <laughs> I moved to New York. When I was 25, I worked for Gordon Ramsay. I staged at John George's at Per Se. I kind of, I try to touch every kitchen and feel it and learn it. And I mean, I was obsessed. Um, at 27, I opened a set and got two stars from the Times. I mean, this is, you know, like I really just flipped the switch and just, I just ran. Um, I don't think it was much luck. I think it was really just, you know, you create your own luck. You know, relentlessness, just, you know, borderline. The harder you work, the luckier you get. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> But some people have other challenges in the way, and you, you certainly, other people have certain challenges along the way, and you certainly did. And so to overcome that, do you feel, do you feel uh, a bit more empowered in yourself? That was a huge, it's so hard to overcome addiction, and the fact that you do, and you did, um, do you feel stronger as an individual? Um, well, you know, I mean, as cliche as it sounds, it's really a day at a time for me. I'm still... I'm still pretty sick. I mean, I always tell people, if you're in my head, you'd be like, whoa, you know. Um, so the thoughts, that's all still there. It's really just about, for me, I play the tape through. So if I get anxious or I feel like doing something, like I play it all the way through and I see it to the end. I, you know, I will give everything away um, if I decide to go down a bad path. Um, so it is a daily reprieve. But moving past that, um, there is definitely a sense of uh, a genuine confidence that if I put my mind to anything or if I really need to do what I need to do like anything's possible and I think that for anybody like I feel like the human spirit is so resilient and so powerful like I think like people have no idea what they're capable of unless they're like pushed into a corner okay so you're really young you're only 31 32 right now you've got two hot restaurants in New York City you know Frank Sinatra make it here you can make it anywhere a day a day at a time when did you leave uh, the big restaurants and and say, okay, I'm doing it on my own and I'm going for it? What was your vision? What was exciting? What were the what were the big surprises? And I mean, you got to feel you got to feel wonderful yeah, about yeah. this. Um, so it was January. You know, it was like 2000 June in 2009. So I was working at Gordon Ramsay in Midtown at the London Hotel. Um, the restaurant was hot at the time. It just got two Michelin stars. It was, you know, the, the, the talent that was coming through that kitchen was just crazy. Um, and I was probably there. I spent probably a year or so there. I'd worked every station. I started as a Comey on the bottom, pricking Sherville and cutting pine nuts in half with a spatula, um, you know, and picking Frise, just the inside. And, you know, it was just, I sat for 18 hours a day just doing that. And then eventually I was working my way up all the way basically to a chef to party of the meat station. So I worked all the stations. And um, Did he ever come in? Yeah. And, and did he yell like he does on TV? Um, yes and no. I mean, the guy, you know, he demanded respect and perfection. I mean, you know, it's like it's funny because the show, like I think the show is almost like almost for in a small way, like downgrade who he really is because he's such an amazing chef. Like it's like. You know, like, you wouldn't necessarily think that, like, as another cook. But, like, in terms of his skill, he's a beast. Like, he's, like, like he really is, like, on another level. Like, legitimately. Like, that guy earned everything. Like, talk about hard work, tenacity, skill. Like, you don't, you don't just get lucky, you know. Like, he's, he's amazing. Like, he would come in there and show people how to do things. Like, in two seconds, he'd be like, 
Okay. So what did you learn in that kitchen? Um, organization, cleanliness, finesse, technique, um, focus, discipline. I mean, you name it. I mean, you know, it was militant in there. It was like literally militant. And how is that kitchen different from Jean-Georges or Percet? Very similar. Very, very similar. It's actually well, funny. It's in the, in the discipline, the finesse, the technique, the organization. Because that's, it's funny because I always like, because I, I have this conversation with, with, you know, some of my cooks here and we always talk about like, they're like, which three stars should I go work at? I said, you should, you can go work at any because they're all very similar. You know what I mean? It's just whether it's, you know, langoustine or foie gras or or red snapper or whatever the style of the chef is. But in terms of what you do when you go in, the organization, the finesse, (coughs) the cleanliness, the standard, the demand for excellence is, is the same across the board. I mean, that's just... So how do you run your restaurant today, your kitchen? How is it different from the Gordon Ramsay's per se and Jean-Georges, the three stars? I know you can't have as many people in the kitchen and as huge and everything like that, but what did you bring back and what makes your kitchen so successful? Um, Well, you know, it's funny. Um, When I first sat and thought about Reset's concept, right? And I said, I'm going to open a restaurant like how I like to eat when I go out. So it was basically I pulled together a plethora of everything that I've seen and learned. And I all the technique, the ingredients, everything I've read, everything I've touched, everything I've eaten at all these places. And I kind of came up with this this idea of – not an idea, I should say, because I think Tom Clicchio or David Chang, like these guys really kind of paved the way for these kind of – you know, craft was like the first place where it was like you don't just order appetizer and entree, you know. And I wanted to get away from that. And he was a big influence for me because Kraft was like, I remember eating there. I was just blown. I was like, oh, my God, this place is awesome. Because um, I saw the technique. I saw the respect for the ingredient. I saw the ingredient. But it, I, but it, it, it took away all the nonsense that you get at those three stars. Like it was just pure. So I wanted to, I wanted to do that because like when my wife and I, when we were going out, which wasn't that often, but when we were – it was like, let's go to, you know, we're going to go to John Dory or Craft Bar or Momofuku or this place and that place and order like 10 starters. We're not going to get a, an appetizer each and then a main course each. Who wants to eat a 10-ounce portion of something? Like after three bites, you're like, eh, you know? And that was the way of – that was that was dining at the time. And so I was like, we're going to open a restaurant and we're going to, we're going to do snacks and plates. And the plates are going to be listed from lightest to heaviest and they're going to range from three bites to 10 bites and – it's just going to be, you know, all different fun flavors. We're going to use that French technique that I learned, but we're going to add those spices and that, the, you know, those this acidity and, and flavor profiles from the Mediterranean that I love so much. Uh, I'm going to touch on Spain because I love doing land and sea. I mean, I would say 80% of Reset's menu has some sort of pork or meat product in every fish dish. Like, I love the Portuguese shellfish and, and, and pork. Mm. Um you know, I mean, that's just my thing. Even the spaghetti and clams of the gander, it's like rendered guanciale with the spaghetti and lobster bisque with mm. clams, you know. But there's three different kinds of clams. You have gooey duck, razor clams, little necks. Mm. Um, but when you look at it and eat it, it tastes like spaghetti and clams. It's just amazing, you know. Um, so I guess that really, you know, like we said, it's like using traditional, like a, a mix of traditional and progressive technique. Like mm. that's my thing. Like you said at the beginning, like, which I said was perfect. I wanted to steal it, but... It's yours. It's mine. And you can come and you can if you you can recognize the technique. Like I, I always wanted my restaurants to be a place where like Daniel Blue would come in, sit down, order the chicken soup or order the spaghetti and be like, 
wow, this is a perfectly clear broth. And look at the knife work on the vegetables. And look how perfect the chicken is French. But he can come with his, he can come with my grandmother. And my grandma would be like, damn, that's some good chicken soup. Yeah. So you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you have both of these people that are both. The sophistication with down-home yeah, feel, you like know? You could just, like, okay, you, could t- you know that we're like a proper kitchen and we're executing right and, and, the, and the quality is there. But at the same time, it's fun. It's scrumptious. My big word is scrumptious. Like, I hate nothing more than going to a restaurant where it's overly technical. It's so pretty and you eat it and it's lukewarm and it doesn't taste good. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like I respect those guys as artists. I mean, I could name a handful of chefs that are brilliant technicians, but they just can't make good food, you know? Um, So I wanted to get away from that. I wanted to be ingredient, 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 good technique and scrumptiousness. Lip smacking. Exactly. (laughs) Like I remember Sam Sifton in the review talked about the cod fritters. He said a head scratchingly good combination. Like I just, I just love that, you know? Um, so how did you jump from Reset to Gander? What was the what was the intellectual chef journey of how you wanted the the restaurants to be different? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I always I always go back to Danny Meyer setting the table. You know, the the, the guests kind of create the restaurant. Like you can you can create a vision and think about how it's going to be, but ultimately the diners are going to drive what it becomes. So Reset was going to be a small plate sharing restaurant, and it turned into this gastronomic tasting menu destination spot. Um, and that was great. And it's, it is what it is. You know, you go in there, you get seven course tasting menu with foie gras and uni and caviar and scallops and all these delicious ingredients. It's $75, not 300. You have Nirvana playing in the background. You're crammed in very West village, beautiful tree line street. That's reset. It's special, right? Um, but what it did is it really did, wasn't that neighborhood restaurant that I wanted it to be. I wanted to open up another restaurant, AKA the Gander. That was everything that reset was with all those re- restraints removed, there's no lunch over there. There's no bar over there. There's no private dining room over there. There's no, you know, like I still, to, for me to come up with, I mean, I know the burger trend is hot, but for me to work with a meat purveyor and come up with a custom grind for a burger, for me, like, I love a good burger. I could do that at the Gander. I have a private dining room at the Gander. I have a huge bar at the Gander. I can get involved with the cocktails. I know how important cocktail programs are to people in the city now and how interesting it can be. Um, And I want to nurture talent. I want to find people that are creative within each sector and help grow them and help, you know, help help them become part of the team, you know. So I needed – I wanted a neighborhood restaurant and that's what the Gander kind of is. So for me, it's exactly the same. Um, in terms of that scrumptiousness, the simplicity, the showing restraint, but using good technique, but still at the end of the day, like familiar, you know. Who do you think you, your biggest mentors were along the way, and and or even just inspirations? Yeah, I would say more inspirations, because um, I mean, you know, I, I talk about mentors. I mean, I mean that's you know that's just hard to answer. Um, but I would say my biggest inspirations. I mean. You know, I think it started with Thomas Keller. Like, I think thinking about, like, just what he did, how he just changed food in America just in general. I mean, take it back even further, Jacques Pepin. You know, La Technique, that book was, like, mind-blowing. You know, I was like, oh, my God, like, who needs culinary school? <laughs> you know? Um, so he's just a master, you know? Because, again, I started watching cooking shows when I was. So, like, watching him was like, I studied that guy. Um, and then, yeah, and then when the French Laundry came out, was, you know, like, so that was, like, a big change for me. And then when I really got into, like, lo- researching and, like, there's something about what he did at Gramercy Tavern and then craft, um, you know, like, having so much, not not so much, I don't want to say the word confidence, but knowing his, cr- knowing so well what he does and then kind of having the, the ball, so to speak, to go out and open craft, which was so, like, 
people can judge it. You know what I mean? Like as a young cook, you'd say, "Oh, well, what's he? Like, that menu looks what roasting mushrooms and putting in it." Like he was like he did it. You know. And I remember going there and just loving everything. Um, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know Andrew Carmelini. I would say if there's any re- restaurant tour today that I would like to emulate, it would be someone like Carmelini, or you know, just in terms of his concepts and how. You know, um, just all the different restaurants. Like, it really just about good food. Like, La Conte Verde, it's just great food. Like, he's not, he isn't, you know, he's not like, he has, he's not opening a three star fine dining restaurant. Like, he's just making good food for people. And they're, you know. Um, so, you know, you're so young. What's, what's on the horizon? Project yourself at 60, which is hard. You will. Uh, yeah, okay. 50. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do you what do you want people to think about you in the food field? What do you, is there something you want to contribute to the canon of cuisine? What, what is it what what do you what what's a is there visions out there for you? Um yeah, there's a lot of visions. I mean, I I always think about what my next move is or what I want to do. Um you know, from a food standpoint, I mean that—that's just a, that's a loaded question because there's just so many talented people out there. You know, like I—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm extremely confident and good at what I do, but I'm also reality based. You know, like for me to make an impact on this industry is probably, you know, I mean, it's just I'm not, I don't know how realistic that is. I want to—I want to. What I'd like to do is be known for for integrity. I want to be known for for quality. You know, I would like whatever I touch to just be. You know, to have integrity. You know, whether it's a burger joint or whether it's a fancy restaurant or, you know, or whether it's a TV show or a, or a product, whatever, whatever. You know, you know. I really just want to be known for for honesty and integrity because I don't. You know. I, what about what about expanding the empire? Because I can I can imagine the difference between running one restaurant and wanting two running two isn't double the work. It's probably triple the work. It's quadruple. One, one was hard. Two was really hard. From what I hear from like Michael White and some other big players, they say three, four, and five is actually easier. It's like the first one's really hard, then the second, and then once you have some sort of corporate infrastructure, it's it kind of they kind of just roll out. But that's not that's not necessarily how I want to do things. I, I, my big my big goal in in my life is to somehow give back on a large scale somehow because I know for me like I can't keep what I have unless I give it away, and that's. Again, I know it's a cliche, but it's the truth. Like I feel my best, and I'm the most motivated, the most serene, and the mo- and the less anxious when I'm out of my head doing stuff for other people. So, however that is, whether that's cooking for someone, whether that's nurturing someone, whether that's mentoring someone, um, ultimately, I just I want to give back. And- Where do you think cooking's going today? Do you think uh, you know five years ago molecular gastronomy and you know uh, next and oh yeah what you know and then eight years ago maybe it was Mama Fuko right so what what's the new trend to, where do you think it's going all of this is molecular is that just taken uh, you know using technology just taken for granted now in the kitchen. Uh, is is ramen noodles or something from you know another continent taken? Where where are the new frontiers? Um, I don't know. I, I, a part of me thinks like the old school French, you know, the old school French formal dining might come back. Um, you know, I think someone whether it's Laurent Gras or, or Gabriel Kunther or one of these guys that are kind of. You know, you hear about looking for spaces, building spaces. There's rumors. I think, I think, I think you might see like a a, a revamp of um, 
fine dining restaurants. I think someone someone's gonna someone's gonna take a step forward, and maybe not necessarily in terms of the decor and the elegance of say a Danielle or or something like that, but in terms of the um, the food, I think we might. Some people are gonna bring it back to basics. But you have that at Per Se. You do, you know, and you have that at uh, you know D- Daniel Hum's doing it in his way. Right. So, do you see a new nuance to that? Uh, but no, I think they're they're doing it, but I think per se is definitely stuck to its guns. Um, I think Eleven Madison Park is kind of has evolved with the times um, to a certain extent, um, but I think you're going to have more chefs kind of bringing back classics and shying away from um, some molecular stuff. Mm. I mean, I think, I, I don't want to say it was a trend that's going to fade, but I think mm. I think what's happening is, is there's a lot of young cooks and a lot of young people that are coming up that are very, that only know that because that's what, in the, the time frame was Ferran and Grant and, you know, and Wiley and, and all these people were kind of, in the last 10 years, that's been really, or five years, 10 years, that's been really prominent. So if you were going through school or, or, or coming, like if I, you know, I grew up in the Mango Mafia and the Nouvelle Cuisine and New World Cuisine, you know, that's like what I saw, like, you know, chutneys with duck and plantains, like, you know, in the 90s, you know. So whoever grew up in the mid-2000s or the late 2000s saw the Ferrano, you know, era. Um, so I think that what's happening is a lot of these young cooks, or forgetting how to roast a piece of meat, how to, you know, cook, you know. Um, so I think that's, I think because of the talent and because of the way restaurants are opening left and right and, and what, you know, what the pedigree of, of people are, are coming through, um, you know, people might, chefs that are leading teams in restaurants are going to, pr- might bring it back to basics and that might, you know, especially with El Bui closing and, um, you know, because if you look at places like Nome or Copenhagen or that like whole farm to table foraging movement, there's not really much involved in that of the molecular hydrochloride kind of chemical aspect. It's just more about using nature and eating things that you wouldn't think you can eat. Um, so I think it, I don't know. I think it's just going to come full circle. I think you know. Okay. Well, we've run out of time. I have one last question. What's your favorite dish you're cooking now? Oh man, it's a tricky one. Spaghetti and clams. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna eat it. Yeah. I'm coming. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Jesse, so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great interview. All right, and I'd like to thank Robin Cohen and Jack Inslee, our producers, and we'll see you next time. Yeah.